morning, church. Um, man, I just want to say how excited I am to be here that uh, Pastor Critchie, Chris even thought to reach out um, and ask me to come speak for you this morning. And I'm just uh, super excited to be back at some place that um, I know that Melissa and I were members here so long ago, but man, it just feels like home. I was telling her, man, just some of the sights and smells and people and like all these things, man, it just feels like we're at home. Um, but last week, uh, Chris started in the book of Acts. Um, and he covered uh, the first 11 verses of, of Acts. And, and we saw how Luke wrote the book of Acts. It was like a continuation of um, the gospel according to, to Luke. Um, and we saw how Jesus had commanded the, the followers there, the disciples there, to stay there in Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit um, that would come to them so that then they would be empowered to go out and take the gospel, uh, all that he had taught them, to the ends of the earth, the surrounding areas, and then to the ends of the earth. Um, and we left off where Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, and he told his followers, he said, um, you know, the Holy Spirit will come and empower you. And the two men show up, and, and we think that maybe they're angels, that they show up and say, hey, what are you looking up for? He's coming back, and he's promised to return. So this week, we'll be back in Acts chapter 1. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be in verses 12 to 26. Um, and hopefully what we're going to see this morning, what we can pick out from the Scripture, um, we can see what the Holy Spirit was doing in the time between Christ's ascension and then the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But let's start with a, a word of prayer. Father, we just come to you this morning. Um, God, just happy to be in your church. Got to be happy to, to be gathered with a group of like-minded believers, God, that, that know your goodness, that trust in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, God, I'm just so happy that we can, we can open your word, God, and, and get a glimpse into uh, your character and your goodness and, and what you have for your church, Father. We just pray that uh, your word is spoken this morning. I just pray that you enable me to, to speak only what, uh, what is good and profitable and, and true, Father. We ask this in your name. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, and I'm going to uh, go ahead and start reading there. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And I'm going to stop right there for just a second, and I want to explain just a couple things. Um, in verse 12, we see that they returned from the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath a Sabbath day walk. And that's a, a term that it didn't necessarily mean it happened on Sunday or that it happened on the Sabbath. This was a legalistic term that the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whatever the Jewish elite at the time had put on a distance that men were allowed to walk on a Sunday before it was considered a sin. Because the Sabbath is holy and we're not supposed to sin or do work or whatever on the Sabbath. But they put this this extreme legalistic term, it was like three quarters of a mile that they were only allowed to walk. And then I want you to look at, too, the people that were gathered together. Um, 
in the upper room praying together. The first one we want to look at is Matthew. Matthew, um, we know from the Gospels that Matthew was a tax collector before he was called to follow Jesus. Uh, he worked for the Roman government to collect taxes for them. And the Jewish people at the time didn't necessarily love Rome. They didn't love that they were being ruled over by them. So they, they would have seen Matthew as an outcast. He's a traitor. Like He's working for the government and taking our money for them. And then you've got, over here, you've got another guy that I want to point out. His name is Simon the Zealot. And we don't know a ton about him, but we know what a zealot is. A zealot was somebody that was, it was a group kind of like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, that they were extremely zealous, uh, very excited for the return of the kingdom. So much so that they would seek to bring the kingdom back and the Jewish rule by force, by the sword, uh, that way. So he was entirely looking forward to and, and in touch with his Jewish heritage. And then you got Matthew over here, who was almost a traitor, and this was all before Jesus called him. And then we want to look right at the end of this, and verse 14, it says, Together they were they were together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Women in this time didn't have a really good standing in society. They weren't seen as equal to men. Uh, they didn't have the same rights and privileges afforded to men. But what I want you to see is we have these people. And this is one of the different uh, points of view about life. They were from different, um, different places, different lifestyles. But they were gathered together in prayer, in one mind, constantly. This is a beautiful example of the glory and God's grace in how the church comes together. Let's continue in, chapter, in uh, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell, but to dwell in it. He's talking about Psalm 69, verse 25. And, Mary, and may another take his place of leadership, and that refers to Psalm 109, verses 8. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us to the resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. And I want to clear something up. Um, verse 26, uh, we see where they cast lots. And yes, we think about casting lots. Uh, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing under the cross and everything. And this was literally um, very similar to what we consider throwing dice, right? It was uh, 
we would see it as luck, we would see it as gambling or whatever, but what I want you to know is in their time, in their culture, in this setting, this was normal. This was a way, um, they didn't do it all the time, but this was a way that the church would go about discerning God's will in certain circumstances where they couldn't or wouldn't make a decision. All right, so this morning, what I want, you to, what I want us to see, um, Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26, is that we can trust in God and His goodness for all the details and all the decisions that we make in our lives. <laughs> and I'm sure you're thinking like, all right, hold on. We're talking about, this is just where they, you know, replaced Judas. Like, how, how do we see, you know, that we can trust God with these decisions and details? Just bear with me for a few minutes, and I hope to show you. And we look at this section of Scripture, and, and I'm guilty of it. You know, sometimes we look at the Scripture, and we see this falls right in between Jesus going to heaven, his ascension, very important. They replaced justice, or they replaced Judas. And then, chapter 2, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we might be, uh, we might be tempted to skim over this section or to skip it. But I want you, what I want you to know is we have to ask, why is this here? Why is this section of Scripture important enough that it was recorded in God's holy word and, and kept over thousands of years, and it's included in the canon of Scripture? Well, I think that for us this morning... This chunk of scripture falls fairly neatly into three sections, three points, and it's going to actually model for us how and why we can trust God with all of the details and all the decisions that we have in our lives. So point number one, verses 12 through 14, it says that the followers of Jesus, right after his ascension, went to somebody's house and they gathered there and began to pray without ceasing. What was the first thing they did was go back to somebody's house and start praying? Why would this have been the first thing that they thought to do? It was because this is what Jesus did. Remember, these people were followers of Jesus, and Jesus modeled throughout his life and his, his mission, his witness in the area. That was what he was about. Mark 9, uh, verses 14 to 29, this is where the disciples had already been sent out. And they were given authority to go cast out demons, to do miracles and whatever. And they come up to this one guy who is, has a demon, and they're trying to cast him out, cast the demon out, and they can't. For whatever the reason, they can't get this demon to come out. And Jesus shows up, and he said, and they tell him, we can't, this is not working. It's worked in the past. And Jesus says, hey, this one only comes out through prayer and fasting. So they knew from their experiences the power and the goodness of prayer. The disciples were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now they fell asleep, but they knew how Jesus prioritized prayer. They were there. They witnessed his priority on prayer. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says that Jesus often withdrew from the crowds to be alone to pray. He would leave people that he knew may have needed some kind of miracle or something, whatever, to be alone because he prioritized prayer. And the disciples saw this. And then Jesus taught them how to pray, how to pray. He gave them the Lord's Prayer, or it's probably better called the model prayer because it teaches us how to pray. So they knew from Jesus' life and his ministry, the way that he taught them, they knew the importance of prayer. But also, these people had the Old Testament. 
They would have been well uh, learned in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were a people of prayer. If we just look at the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is filled with men and women praying, uh, pleading with God. We see men and women praising God in prayer. So they would have been from history a people that knew to pray. So that's why they prayed. But now we have to ask, what is prayer? So what are they doing here? You know, they, we see they came and they understood prayer, but what is prayer? How do we pray? Well, prayer is talking to God. It's praising Him. It's thanking Him. It's trusting in Him. It's, he, it's asking Him for the things that He already knows that we need. And prayer is what they were taught to do to have this relationship with God. So they knew it was necessary. They knew that it sustained life. And they knew that life was hard and futile when they didn't pray. Not that it was going to be easy when they did pray, but they knew the power of prayer. So how do we practically model this? How do we do like the followers here, the disciples here, how do we pray without ceasing? Does that mean that, you know, we, we get in our houses or we gather together in the churches and we literally continuously pray and we never leave and we don't do anything else? Well, yeah, actually a little bit. We should be a people that that's what we're about. It more fully probably means that we pray often. That's what we default to. It's what we turn to first when we don't know what to do, when times are hard. Prayer is how we build that relationship, and it's important. So, I heard this a long time ago. I hope it's not true, um, but I want to give you a little illustration. There was a guy who, on his, on his wedding day, uh, after he's married, he goes to his wife and he turns to her and says, Baby, I love you. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. And then he never told her he loved her again from that day on. Huh? Like, like I get it. He's probably, you know, some rough and gruff kind of guy. You know, didn't like to show his emotions. But is that really what we should do? Like, if I never told my wife that I loved her, she'd probably start thinking that I didn't. So prayer is, is telling God that we love him, that we need him. It's, it's that open line of communication between us and him. And I want to make one more point about this. How we pray is important. We don't see God as a genie in a lamp that we get to rub and ask for all the things we need. God modeled it better for us in the model prayer. He told us, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And a few years ago, somebody gave me this acronym, and it's ACTS. A-C-T-S. If you never heard it, write it down. Um, should be easy to remember. We're in the book of Acts. So, but each of the letters stand for a way, a step in how we pray. So the letter A stands for adoration. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, we're praising him for his position as creator, as sustainer, as lover, as uh, giver of life and everything. C is confession. This is where we confess that we're not God. We're sinful people in need of God. So the C stands for confession. The T stands for thanksgiving. And this is where we, God, we know you're good. We're not good. But man, we sure thank you for letting us live the way that we do. For giving us the opportunity to gather together as a church. We thank you for sending us Jesus to die for our sins. And then S is supplication. And that is just a fancy word 
for then asking for the things that we need. And notice that the supplication comes at the end of the prayer, right? This is when we ask for healing. We ask for uh, provision. We ask for the things, for our daily bread. We ask for the things that we know, that he knows that we need. So point number one, we pray without ceasing. Point number two, if we look at verses 15 through 20, we have to know the scriptures. God has worked in the past, he's working now, and he will work in the future. And we can see that through the scriptures. So Peter stood up among all the believers, a group numbered about 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Well, how did he know that the scriptures had to be fulfilled? Because he knew the scriptures. He knew Jesus. He had been about praying. So praying is talking to God, and then the Bible is God talking back to us. This is how God relays his goodness and his mercy. And Peter knew this. He was able to look at the scriptures, and he said, hey, Judas needs to be replaced. Because he knew what the apostles were and what they were intended to do. He heard Jesus say that, hey, go. When you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, go. Share it with the rest of the world. So we see, okay, Peter knew that, that Judas had to be replaced, but why? Like, like this, you know, why do we have to have all 12? Why can't we stop at 11? Well, I think we need to look at what an apostle is first. And, and the, the dictionary definition of what an apostle is, is one who has received authority to teach or preach, or one who has been sent. Okay, so Jesus had a bunch of followers. Right here, just gathered his 120. Of those, he had 12 that were close to him, that he taught uh, closely, that he was with, he shared life with, he did all of these things with, and they had authority to teach and preach. And in Matthew 10, Jesus sends them out, he gives them that authority, and people knew these apostles. So they would have been known to be with Jesus, and after Jesus has left, people are looking at the apostles and say, hey, you know, who are you guys? Like, what? Teach us, what do you do? So it was important that the 12, that we have 12. Other commentators say that um, the 12 apostles are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel so that the witness of Israel would be complete. Um, but I really, I think that, that it was so that they could go out and to teach. All right, so, so we know that they had to be replaced we know why they had to be replaced, because they were important guys that were to bear the witness of the gospel to the rest of the world. But then we also see that, that there are some requirements here for the apostles. And, and Peter gets that from the scriptures and from his teaching with Jesus. Peter says that um, the apostles, uh, sorry, I don't want to get caught up here. All right, hold on. We'll back up. Jesus gave the apostles in Matthew 28, right? He gave us, the people, the Great Commission. He said, go therefore, it says, all authority of heaven has been given to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Last week, verse 8 in Acts 1, Jesus said that it is ascension that we get the Holy Spirit. 
and that they would be missionaries or ambassadors or apostles in all Judea, of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So what I want to make a point is that people are God's primary plan, his only plan for sharing the gospel. And because Peter understood this from the scriptures, because he knew the importance of that witness and the, the position that was left vacant by Judas, he knew that they had to be replaced. And he referred to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. He put all of that together because of his understanding of the scripture. All right, we get it. Peter understood the scripture. We understood why the apostle had, the apostle had to be replaced. How, like, like how do we practically do this? How did Peter know? Like, what does he do? Well, he, he studied the scriptures. And if you're like me, believe it or not, I don't read the Bible every day. Like, I miss it. Like, there are days life gets in the way and things happen. It's like, you know what? Oh, I meant to get up this morning and have my quiet time. I'll get it later. And other things happen and I get it later. And other things, and, I, and before I know it, it's bedtime. I'm like, ah, oh, I'll get it tomorrow. Right? But we have to know that reading the Bible is important. And reading it regularly is important if we're to know what God has for us. And it's surprising, like, like when we actually, when we're reading and, and we're digging in the Word um, and we're wrestling with the hard scriptures and, and we're being comforted by the, the comforting passages and the love of God. Isn't it interesting how as you're going through your day and your week or whatever, those things that you've been reading become applicable like you're like, oh shoot, I just read about that. Or, oh man, that is really good here. It's funny how that works. It's funny that you know, we're reading these passages, we're memorizing scripture, we're getting into it, and then you know, something happens, somebody comes to us that's, that's in a low spot. You know, they need encouragement. Man, and the scriptures just flow from us because they, we fill ourselves with the goodness of God's scripture, and it flows out, and we can, we can teach. We can, we can comfort. We can, we can give words of warning when they don't realize they're, they're traveling down the wrong road. Same Holy Spirit who wrote these scriptures, who carried men along to write these scriptures, is the same Holy Spirit that's in us when we receive the free gift of salvation. And is the same Holy Spirit who helps us understand the Bible when we go to learn it and to read it. And is the same Holy Spirit that is going to create that change in our lives so that we know the scriptures and where God has us headed. So, number one, we pray. And number two, we have to know the scriptures. And then number three, three, we make a decision, trusting in God's goodness that we've experienced through the prayer and reading of the Bible. So verse 21 to 26, they've been praying, and Peter tells them that because the scriptures need to be fulfilled, now they need to make a decision on who is going to replace Jesus. And we get this, like we have to make decisions every day, right? Like we know, all right, I got to... I chose to get out of bed this morning. I chose to wear these clothes. I chose to drive to drive the speed limit or not. Um, we have decisions to make. Now, I get it. These are small decisions. They're bigger decisions. They're more complicated decisions. There's some trivial decisions. And there's all this in between. But we get to make decisions, and those decisions have consequences. If I chose to speed this morning then I'm accepting that if I get caught, then I'm going to pay the consequence. I get to pay the fine. I get to do whatever. I know that if I choose this over here, then I'm not choosing this over here. 
Peter knew the importance of this decision. He knew a decision had to be made, and he knew the importance. So he addresses the guidelines in verses 21 and 22. He says that the candidate had to meet the requirements. They had to be an apostle. They had to be a follower of Jesus, a witness of his ministry, taught by him. And he had to be with him from the beginning, from Jesus' baptism, all the way through to his, his life, his death on the cross, all the way to the resurrection. And that was what had to be the requirements of this decision. Alright, I'm a fireman by trade. That's, that's what I do for, for a living. And in my job, I have decisions I can make. Now, the goal for me, my, my job description is to drive the truck safely to get my men to wherever we're going safely. And then to operate that truck in a way that is safe and accomplishes the task of putting the fire out. Okay? Within those guidelines, I can make decisions. I drive as fast as I want to do. I run the red lights I want to run. I put what hoses to where I want to work them. Whatever, knowing that I've got this end goal. My captain doesn't hold me by the hand and say, okay, do this next. All right, do this next. All right, do this next. And that's how we get to operate under God's grace. He gives us the guidelines here in the scriptures and then says, make choices. Make choices that align with this. Now we have to be careful, I want to warn you, we can't fall into the trap of seeing this as only a little, you know, this is our roadmap to life because it's so much more than that. It is that, but it is so much more than that. Like, you're probably not going to find a verse in here on, you know, where to go eat lunch, you know, which Mexican restaurant restaurant has the best fajitas. Like, you're probably not going to find information for that choice in here. But you're going to see the overall guidelines for making decisions. This lays out God's commands, His character, His desires, His heart, His loves, and He expects us to live inside these boundaries. And if our decisions, if they line up with Scripture, it's a good decision. Example, uh, the, one of the biggest decisions that we'll make in our lives, more than likely, is are we going to get married? And if so, who are we going to get married to? Like That's one of the, you know, the top decisions we make in our lives. Um, and there's freedom in that. We know that if, if, if the person or persons that we're choosing or whatever, if they're a believer, if they're of the opposite gender, if they share a biblical worldview and a love for Christ, if they meet all of God's requirements, we can choose. And God will bless that. If that person falls inside of the parameters set up inside of Scripture that he puts out for husband and wife, we can make that decision. But where we fall into trouble is when we let the culture inform and we get away from the Scriptures and we say, well, you know, Carl world says this is okay or this is okay. And that's when we, we mess up and we're not in, in tune with God's perfect will and his design for this world. That's what Peter got right here. He led them to making the decision. They said, hey, they have to be qualified. And of who's qualified, we got two guys. They trusted in God's sovereignty over the decision. And they said, hey, we got two guys and we, I can't make a decision. I don't know. He says, we're going to, uh, we're going to believe that God has a plan for his creation. He's been working since the beginning to let all of these circumstances throughout the world work together to bring about his will. And they ended up casting lots. 
Now, in Scripture, I need to clarify, we have things that are descriptive, descriptive, and things that are prescriptive. Things that we read about, they're like, okay, this is what they did. Right here, they, they cast lots. Uh, we read about, um, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea. We read about Samson picking up a jawbone and killing a bunch of men with it. That's descriptive. It doesn't mean that we should go out and stand in the middle of the whole river with a stick and try to part the whole river. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, you know, we should go find a donkey jawbone somewhere and go whoop up on people. This is descriptive, but it gives us an idea of God's intent or his, his character. What's prescriptive are the things that God says, go and do. The Great Commission. Go. Tell people. We know we do those things because God said do it. Do it like this. When you pray, pray like this. Those are prescriptive requirements. Casting lots, this would, like I said earlier, this would have been acceptable, but it's not the norm. And it's not something that, you know, we just roll the dice and go with. Now, they knew the requirements, they picked the people, and could they have just as easily flipped the coin? Could they have just as easily said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take justice instead of Matthias. Maybe. We'd be speculating. But what we do know is that when they cast lots, when, when they decided this is how we're going to see God's will, that God was, God's will is always going to be true. They prayed for guidance. They knew the requirements through the scriptures. And they made a choice. And they knew that the mission of that choice, the purpose, was to choose an apostle so that the witness would be complete, so that they could go and tell the world about Jesus Christ. And God blessed their decision. All right, I've got a couple points of application here, and then, and then we'll be done. Number one, God the Almighty Creator has a plan. He's had a plan from the beginning. Nothing catches him off guard. And we can trust that he knows the past, the present, the future, and is continuously working to work all of those things together for his glory and our good. And I'm going to show you how, how we have to know the scriptures. This is how scripture proves it. If we look at the whole story of scripture from beginning to end, the overarching story, God, who has always been, created out of his love this world and, and us. And then man decided shortly thereafter to love himself more than God. And he said, you know what, I'm going to try to be like God. And he eats of the fruit of the tree, not of good and evil. And then God immediately told Adam and Eve right there after that, that, hey, there will be one that comes that will redeem the goodness of creation. And then God preserved a remnant through the flood, Noah's family. God chose Abraham and his family and says, you know, that one day he's going to bring forth the Savior through the line of Abraham. He said that uh, he went to David and, and chose David, who was the least likely of all of the others. But God chose David, allowed him to be the king, through whom, through his, his line, would come a Savior, the Savior. And God foretold in the, in the rest of the Old Testament, through the prophets and everything, about a coming Savior. And then that brings us to the gospel, right? The culmination of God's plan throughout time, how he's worked all the intricacies of life together to bring about Jesus, born of a virgin, was God, come to earth in flesh, lived a perfect life. Although he was tempted and tested, he accepted being condemned to death, even death on a cross. 
He was raised from the dead, defeating hell and sin forever. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And he promised here that he's coming again. But in the meantime, we have a mission to accomplish. Now, was this just something that God came up with on the fly? He's like, oh shoot, my creation you know, doesn't like me anymore. No, absolutely not. He knew this was coming. Scripture testifies to it. He says, you know, that in Genesis 3, verse 15, he's talking to the serpent right after Adam and Eve had sinned and says, there's going to be one coming that will crush your head and you will only bruise his heel. Jesus was alluded to in the account of Abraham when in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That blessing coming is Jesus. Psalm 22. This one's interesting, and I just discovered this one recently. Psalm 22 starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds really familiar, right? We just covered the book of Matthew. You guys did this at church shortly, a little while back. In Matthew 27, 46, these are the exact words of Jesus on the cross. Referring back to Psalm 22, that gives a description of what the crucifixion was going to be like. Isaiah 53 prophesies and has detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. So we get to see through Scripture all of this that God has worked. All of these facts and minute details and prophecies, answer prophecy, all of these things moving forward and he's worked them all together for his glory and our good so we can trust him from history that his mission is going to be completed it's coming point number two the decisions and details of our lives have to be focused on god's mission we see god's mission in scripture the overarching story of scripture that he is coming to redeem his world and will one day redeem it fully and we live with him forever so the decisions that we get to make have to align with the Great Commission. So for Peter and, and the other disciples that are here, and, and for the church today, the main point of replacing Judas was so that the witness, the gospel, would go forth. Like Peter and the other church, we have to be miserably minded in, our, in our, everything that we do. There are real lasting consequences to the decisions that we make about how we live our lives. And I discovered these a while back, several years ago. Two books I want to recommend to you. I was never a reader. I get it. But these two books really changed my life. Um, this is Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And Piper gives a really, really good um, perspective on how we live our lives, not for the American dream, but for the mission of the church. And then this book right here, uh, I talked through this with a college group. Um, We've read it together in a small group, um, but it's called Just Do Something. It's written by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, he's the pastor of uh, Imago Day Church in Wake Forest. But that book right there brings everything down simply. When we're making decisions, we can see practical application of figuring out God's will. And the secret is, really, it aligns with the mission of Scripture. But really, two good books I'd encourage you to read. So... If we're going to practically live missionally in our lives, how do we do that? First, we do what Jesus says. We follow the Great Commission. We be about 
making disciples who make disciples who make disciples wherever we are. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a professional minister. Um, all of God's people are called to share the Great Commission, to share in the Great Commission of sharing the gospel. So whatever your position in life, whether you're an adult, a child, a teenager, uh, a college student, uh, whatever your job is, wherever your home is, whatever, whatever community you live in, whatever hobbies you do, whatever church you attend, whatever you're doing, whatever your position in life is, you should be leveraging all of that for the kingdom. Even when we're quarantined at home, we really can't go anywhere. We're speaking the gospel into ourselves. We're speaking it into our family. We're speaking it into the ones we love because we need it. We need to hear the goodness of the gospel so that we are focused on the mission. And I keep saying this thing about gospel and what that is, and, and it's, it's one of the most important, it is the most important thing we'll ever do in our lives, right? Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Except by Jesus. Jesus said that, not me. Uh, if the gospel isn't shared, people don't have a chance. If the gospel isn't shared, the only way that somebody can have that relationship through prayer to God and God speaking back to us through his word is to have Jesus in your heart. To accept the free gift of salvation. And if you haven't done that, man, come see me after church. Come see me with deacons. Somebody in your life, whatever, like, that is the number one decision we're making in our lives. And if that's the number one decision for anybody to make, then we have to be a people about helping people share with them their need to make that decision. Going through this life in the grand scheme of things, we're here for a short amount of time, right? Like in the thousands of years that the world's been around, we're going to be here for a little bit. So we have to be focused on that mission. That's why they replaced Jesus. That's how they knew how to do it. So we pray without ceasing. We study God's word and we make those choices in everyday life with confidence, knowing that God's character revealed in scripture, that he is a good father and that he has not left this world to self-destruct, but he is actively redeeming. He is actively redeeming his good creation through the ordinary circumstances and obedience of gospel-minded people. Let's pray. Father, um, Wow, we're just, we stand in awe of you, Father. Your ability to, to create this world that we live in. God, your ability to redeem it, although we struggle against you. God, you gave us Jesus. God, that is the, the reconciling of us back with you because of through his atoning death on the cross, paying for our sins, we can now have that relationship with you. God, we can pray to you. We can reveal our hearts to you. God, you already see them. And then we get to see your word. We get to see your heart through your scripture, Father. God, we just pray that, that for us this morning that we'll be obedient. God, that we'll see your word. That we'll see the example of Jesus. God, we'll be a gospel-minded people that's not turned inward, but turned outward to share. God, we pray for, for this congregation that will go out this week. That, that we'll be influenced by the scriptures, God, and be about your commission. God, just bless us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.